0: So everybody turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you have a Pew Bible, it'll be on page 1,288 of the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, feel free to take one home, uh, one of the red books in front of you. Consider that a gift from us, but it'll be on 1,288. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. On the evening of November 3rd, 2020, pastor and blogger Tim Challies received a call that every parent dreads the most his 20-year-old son Nick had died while playing sports with friends at his college there was no warning and no explanation only the disorientation of unthinkable loss and the battle for faith in the goodness of God's sovereignty during that time he was interviewed at a church and I want you to listen to some of the interview Question to Tim. In your prologue, you mentioned that you began writing the night you learned Nick had died. How did these early thoughts turn into the book that is before us? I had to board a plane right after hearing the news. In the air, I started writing, partly to reflect on what was happening and partly because I needed to tell my blog readers what had happened. At this point, I could only describe what I was going through in real time. Question, are there any memoirs of grief and loss that were especially helpful either for dealing with grief or supplying a model for your book? And Tim replied, years ago, I discovered a book on grief from the Presbyterian author J.R. Miller, who wrote during the late 1800s and early 1900s. The main idea I took away was seeing grief as God's call to a ministry of comfort. If a sovereign God has given you this burden, then how will you use it to serve Him and His purposes? The interviewer said, Your book is full of searing honesty and about the anguish you experienced, but it also radiates confidence in the sovereignty and goodness of God. In an earlier chapter titled, My Manifesto, you write this, By faith I will accept Nick's death as God's will, and by faith accept that God's will is always good. I will grieve but not grumble, mourn but not murmur weep but, my, but not whine. How did these resolutions hold up in the year that followed? Early on, my wife and I realized we were either going to trust God in this or we weren't. We believe strongly in God's sovereignty and we profess it all the time. But throughout my life, God's sovereignty had almost invariably done what I wanted it to do. My wife sometimes uh, reminds me of, that, of what I told her the year or two leading up to this that we have an easy life and there's got to be some sorrow coming the interviewer asks next you describe nick's death as a stewardship received from god just as his life had been a stewardship what does it mean to be a steward of grief if we truly believe that god is sovereign then nothing happens in life that isn't a call to stewardship of some form Whatever providence directs has been given by God for a purpose, and our goal is to receive it well, whether that's great talents or a lot of money, or even things we wouldn't wish, sorrow and losses. In that way, grief is a stewardship. It is given by God, and we are responsible before Him to use it well, primarily by displaying Christian faith and virtue through it. By this we prove to the world that Christians won't turn away from God when things don't go our way. It has buoyed our own faith and confidence just to know that we truly do love God. The interviewer continues, How would you encourage someone whose grief is still fresh, someone deep in despair and struggling to remain faithful? Tim responds, Finding meaning and purpose in your loss is not the same as saying you are no longer deeply broken-hearted over it. I am broken. I am shattered. I am never going to be the man I was before. I still cry constantly. I still haven't gone through a worship service without weeping through the singing. This is my reality. But it doesn't mean I can't say that God has meaning and purpose in it and, I, and that I can't serve Him in all the more in these circumstances. The last question from the interviewer. The book leaves off in the fall of 2021, on the anniversary of Nick's death. Has your experience of grief changed since then? Listen to his response. The Lord has been so good and kind throughout these two years. I think I can really say that all of us love the Lord more now than we did before. We have more tangible sense of His providence, that He's directing all things to His glory. And we want to be used by the Lord for His purposes, to be found faithful in all that He calls us to do. It is testimony like this from men and women in our lives, the men and women that are in our culture, that encourages our hearts because we vividly see that God's command to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds is really possible to obey in a way that brings great glory to God. It is not easy or pleasant, but we know, we know trials bring assurance of our salvation, matures our faith, builds endurance in handling trials, moves us closer to Christ's likeness, and helps us see we lack nothing in Jesus Christ. However, even though we know these truths about trials that will come into our lives, we have to admit we don't always have the wisdom that helps us respond to trials like Tim Challies did. We don't always have the wisdom we need to do that. James knew his people wouldn't have access to his pastoral wisdom in how to respond well to trials. He knew there would be few, if any, real mature Christ followers in the cities that his people, his flock, had fled to. Remember, he is writing to a dispersed congregation He teaches them now how they should practically find the wisdom they would need to respond to the trials that they are going to experience. And he is also going to teach us that we can find wisdom in how to experience the trials that you and I are going to have in our lives. Let's refer back to James and follow along as I read verses 5 through 12. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, Unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Remember, this is what we're going to find throughout the book of James a pastor giving his dispersed flock very, very practical advice on how to behave as Christ followers. They were already saved, they understood the gospel, but they needed help in how to behave as Christians. And they were isolated. Notice our passage this morning is still part of this idea that James is talking about trials and and having joy in the midst of our trials. And we see some connection points here. And some of the problems that we uh, hear about in James is it seems very disjointed, that it's like just a bunch of little things stacked together. And at times it does seem like that, but when we stop for a second and look at it, there is flow to James. And we see a couple of connections uh, between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 12 and these connections look at chapter 1 verse 2 chapter 1 verse 2 counter all joy when you meet trials of various kinds so we understand he's introducing this whole section on trials look at chapter 1 verse 12 blesses the man who remains what steadfast under trial you see the connection Everything between the two trials is speaking on the same topic, how to have joy during trials. We also see a connection between chapter one, verse four, let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But now read verse five. If any of you, what? Lacks wisdom. Wisdom you see a connection there the one word lack in between those two verses is showing that he is flowing from chapter one verse four into verse five and the first principle that we have here about gaining wisdom that leads us to finding joys in trials there's there's principles here how do we gain the wisdom that we need to go through trials The first thing we understand, and it's a comforting one, all Christ followers lack the wisdom they need to respond to trials properly. All Christ followers lack the wisdom they need to respond to trials properly. Verse 5, notice, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom. This is a conditional statement for you English folks. The way that that is written in this conditional statement, which is really, really important for us to understand what he's going to start with, he is saying it this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, and you do. If any of you lacks, and you all do. That's the assumption in the way that this conditional is written. So what's he saying? Every single person here this morning lacks the wisdom they need to live out the truth of our life to find in our trials a blessing from God. Now, I want you to understand something. This is really encouraging to us. Because who knows that we don't have the wisdom we need? God. He knows. He knows that we don't have what we need. And knowing that our God is a giving God, what do we know He's going to do? Provide a way for us to get it. And sometimes when I have trials in my life, and I know that sometimes when you have trials in your life, and we just don't know how to deal with it, sometimes we feel like we fail, especially in light of verse 2, count it all joy. How many of you have failed in a trial to count that trial as joy? I'm not saying you're all having tremendously bad trials, but all of us have been stuck on the freeway or have been, you know, all those things are trials in one way or the other. And so we understand we need wisdom here. There is no one here this morning who has all the wisdom they need to see trials as blessings. And it is of utmost importance that you and I are humble enough to admit that. If you feel as if you don't need help, to respond to the trials correctly, you will never mature in handling the trials that God brings you into your life. If you're not humble enough to say, I need help, you will never get better at responding to trials in the right way. give you an illustration here with a man that many of us are familiar with, a king, the wisest king that Israel ever had in Solomon's kingship or during his time as king over Israel. You'll find this, we're not going to go to it, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And what we find in this is Solomon is now the king of Israel. He has just newly been crowned king. And God comes to him and says what? I'll give you whatever you ask for. How many of you would love that opportunity to have God come to you and say, whatever you want, I will give it to you? What would you ask for? He didn't limit it. He didn't say you could only ask for this much. He says, whatever you want, I will give it. What things could a king ask for? Power, wealth, influence, bigger kingdom, no enemies. I mean, there have been hundreds of things that Solomon could ask for. Was Solomon, as a king, was he pretty high up on the totem pole? Yeah. But here we have a newly crowned king who comes to God and says, I don't know how to lead your people. I don't have the wisdom and the insight that it takes to lead your people. So please give me wisdom so that I can lead your people in the way that you need me to. How many of you would have thought to ask God for wisdom if he opened up his storehouses, and said, whatever you ask for. You know what that shows us about Solomon's heart? How humble was Solomon? He says, I don't know how to do this right, God. I need your wisdom. It's encouraging for us here to know that God knows that we need his help. It's encouraging to grasp that God knows it's not natural for his people to respond to trials correctly, even after salvation. It is not natural for you to respond to trials this way. How many of you find it really easy to count it all joy in your trials since you've been saved? None of us really do. It's not natural. It's not something that God says when you say, Lord God, I understand my sin. I understand that I need salvation in Jesus Christ. And God says, great. Now all you're going to do is rejoice in everything that I bring into your life. That doesn't happen. It is still not natural, even after salvation. We need, all need help and guidance in maturing to see trials as being gifts from God. Our sinful nature cringes at the thought that trials are good for us. I'm not sure how, but God had prepared Tim Chalice and his wife and his family to respond with wisdom to the sudden death of their child how many parents respond like tim chalice did and says i have grown in my love for christ i have grown in my respect for him i have found that i want to i have a stewardship of this grief how many people have you ever known to respond to trials like that of a death of a child What a comfort it is to know that God knows our weaknesses. And he's given us examples like Tim Challey's and, and Solomon to know that we can become humble enough to come to God and say, I need help. And that we can grow to a point where when things and difficulties come in our lives because of trials, even severe ones, that we can respond in a way that brings honor and glory to God and we find joy in it just like Tim Challies did. Is Tim Challies and his wife still struggling with the death of their son? He was very upfront about it. I will never be the same man again. But God is sovereign, and I know this is good for me. As I said, what a comfort it is to know God knows our weaknesses and provides us a way to strengthen those weaknesses. With His help, God is saying through James, you need to see your trials as gifts from me and be joyful through them because of what they are teaching you but i also know that this will be a struggle for you and he says so come to me so come to me and we're going to look at that idea of asking and coming to him in just a minute but before we look at that we need to make sure that we all know what biblical wisdom is We've been talking about it since we started this morning. We talked about the wisdom to deal with trials in the way that God wants us to. And wisdom is not something that's in vogue today. Wisdom is not something we hear a lot about today in our culture. When's the last time you ever heard anybody talk about wisdom? When is the last time a student heard a teacher say, to be successful in this world, after you graduate, you need to gain as much wisdom as you can while you're here? Never have ever heard it. I never had a teacher ever tell me that. Or when you're training for a new job, how many times did we hear an instructor say, you will be very successful in this job if you gain as much wisdom as you can in this class? We rarely hear anything about gaining wisdom But we hear a lot about gaining knowledge and how gaining knowledge empowers you. Our culture has so much access to information today. We're obsessed with gaining information. We surf, we listen to snippets of podcasts. I mean, everywhere we go, we're gaining information. We're cataloging information. How many of you think that you actually have information overload? It never seems to stop in our culture. You go to work and a new piece of equipment comes out and all of a sudden you have to gain the knowledge about that. I mean, it's like overnight. And as soon as you, lo- you learn that piece of equipment, what happens? Another one comes out and you've got to start all over again. We're inundated with knowledge. Much of our education focuses on the dissemination of knowledge, but just gaining knowledge doesn't make one wise. If gaining knowledge was the answer to fixing AIDS, it would have already been fixed. We all know about AIDS. We've heard about it for years and years and years. We all have knowledge about AIDS and how to keep ourselves from getting AIDS, but how many of us understand that AIDS is still spreading. We have the knowledge, but it's still spreading. If education was really the answer to premarital sex, it would have already been fixed. All of our schools want to give sex education. All of our schools want to teach our kids how to stay away from sex and sexual relationships. But you want to know something? Has it really done any good? Not really. Right now, it's up in the 80 80 percentile, 80 percent realm that kids as young as 12 years old have already experienced some sort of sex. 80% of the kids who go to our schools. You see, the knowledge, the knowledge isn't enough. What's missing? Wisdom. Wisdom. Anyone who has ever been a teacher can attest to this. Teachers have had many intelligent children under their tutelage. They have helped their kids learn all kinds of knowledge. They have increased their reading level. They have acquired higher level of math skills. They have increased their knowledge about culture, science, geography, anger management, And even again, as we've said, how to uh, be safe in sex. But how many of you as teachers would consider your students wise? How many of them actually use the knowledge that you have taught them to make wise choices in their relationships, in their choices about time management, in their choices to stay away from drugs and alcohol, in their choices to stay away from uh, pornography and sexual indulgences, indulgences? How many of them have used the knowledge that you've given them in their choice about what priorities they should have in life, in their choice of what to do with their money? And I think if we were to look at most teachers around, they would look at you and go, I don't have many of those, if any at all, in my class. I teach them all this knowledge, but they are not wise. How many of you who are raising kids consider your children to be wise? Some more than others. For for a lot of parents, they look at their kids. They, how many of your parents have looked at them and go, "Help me understand why you did that." You know better, <laughs> and you look at them, and you know better, and they say, "Yes, so why did you do that?" I don't know. Lack of wisdom. I'm not saying gaining knowledge is useless. Gaining knowledge through education is an extremely important part of living a successful life, but it cannot stand alone. Knowledge and information must be paired with wisdom, especially wisdom from a biblical perspective. Wisdom is not just simply cognitive, wisdom is not just something mental, wisdom is moral. Wisdom is moral. Wisdom is behavior that comes from a belief system. You take the knowledge that you have, and you have this belief system that guides and directs how you use that knowledge in a day-to-day basis. And this is the point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7. Many of you will understand this. Matthew chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. We are at the very end of the sermon, and He ends the sermon with a really cool story many of you know it what's the song about building a house how does that go somebody want to sing it no i'm not going to sing it but the idea jesus says a wise man builds his house upon the rock and when the storm comes the house will stand when the trials come the house will stand The foolish man builds his house upon the sand, and when the trials come, what happens to the house? You know what Jesus was trying to say? He interprets it. He says, those who listen to my words, those who pay attention to my words and do my words, those are the wise people. Those are the ones that have a rock to build their house on. Those who ignore my words, and he's referring to what words here? All the sermon that he gave before. If you ignore what I am teaching you, you are a foolish person. If you don't put into practice what I have taught you. Both house builders had the same information. Both house builders had the same knowledge on how to build a house. But one acted on Jesus' words, and one didn't. One was wise in listening to Jesus, a moral choice, and one was foolish in not listening to Jesus, also a moral choice. Wisdom is knowledge turned into action through moral choices. Wisdom is knowledge turned into action through moral choices. We can put it this way. Biblical wisdom is knowledge turned to action through moral choices guided by what? Biblical wisdom principles. That's what wisdom is. Biblical wisdom is knowledge turned to action through moral choices guided by biblical principles. I also like how Alstar Begg puts it a little bit shorter than that one there. Wisdom is living God's way in God's world. Do we need to have knowledge of God's world? Yes, we do. But do we also need to understand what God's way is in that world to use that knowledge correctly? Yes, we do. The first principle of gaining wisdom that leads to finding joys in trials is that all Christians lack the wisdom they need to respond to trials. And that brings comfort to our lives because we understand God understands. We also understand now what wisdom is. We need to have a firm grasp on that. The second principle of gaining wisdom that leads to joy in trials Christ followers look to God for wisdom. Do we, need to, do we need wisdom? How many people here need wisdom? Where do you find it? Christ followers find it in God. Look at verse, chapter 1 of James, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and you do, let him ask God. Let him ask God. How clear is that? And what I find very interesting here is this idea when it says, ask God. Remember we said that there are 60 imperatives in the book of James? Ask is an imperative. It's a command. If you think you lack wisdom, then I command you to come to me and ask. Does that bring comfort to your lives? Yeah, because what does God want to do? He wants to give you wisdom. Wisdom. We've already talked about this, but we see this same thing in Solomon. It's the the same idea here. Solomon knew he needed wisdom. Where did he go to get it? To God. And he didn't turn to anybody else. He didn't turn to scientists. He didn't turn to any educational endeavor. He turned to God and said, what? I need it. We all need to look to God for what wisdom Satan doesn't want anyone to live God's way in God's world. He wants the wisdom of God hidden. Mankind's sin and rebellion play right into Satan's hand. Mankind, since the Garden of Eden, desires to be like God. And this desire has caused them to seek wisdom from sources other than God. If I don't want God to control my life, where am I going to go for wisdom? Wherever I think I can find it in the world. Who? is the ruler of this world, Satan's. If you're seeking wisdom to be able to handle trials in a way that you rejoice in them, in a way that you find joy in them, if you look anyplace else but in God's Word, or you look anyplace else but to God, you are looking at putting Satan's wisdom as part of your life. Satan has used the desire to lead mankind into believing their worldly wisdom is greater than God's wisdom. But the Bible reveals what Solomon knew. God's wisdom is infinitely greater than the wisdom of the world, man's wisdom, the wisdom of Satan. God's wisdom is infinitely greater than anything you're going to find on this planet. I want everybody to, re, uh, to turn to Job chapter 28, and you can find it in your pew Bible there. Job chapter 28, I'm going to start reading him, verse 12. Job chapter 28, verse 12. Remember what's happening to Job? Is Job going through a trial right now? He lost everything. He didn't lose just one child like Tim Challies did. How many children did he lose? Seven. He lost everything he could build a career with. He lost all of his monetary resources. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? Directly applies to what we're looking at. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver, cannot, weigh its, cannot be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The po- topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. But then he says, God understands the way to it. He knows its place. And then he gives examples of how God is the place to find wisdom. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning to the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Where does Job think wisdom is found? Not anywhere on earth, can't be bought, Can't. but it's found in God. Solomon echoes what Job says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Many of us know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do what? And lean not to your own understanding. Lean not unto your own wisdom. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight for your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. He says, Do not rest in the confidence of your own wisdom. We're going to find it where? in God. We also see Paul, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. All through the Old Testament, in all the wisdom literature, in the New Testament, we find that wisdom is found only in God. James even talks about this. We haven't got there yet, James chapter 3 verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good, fruits and good fruits, impartial and sincere. How many of us want wisdom like that? And where's the only place it can be found? From above. What's it referring to? God. God. True wisdom can only be found by looking to God for that wisdom. And I find great comfort in the fact that God wants me to ask Him for wisdom. Look again at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. God is waiting for you to ask. In fact, God, through James, actually commands, as I said, His people to ask Him for wisdom. God commands His people to come to Him and ask for wisdom. They need to respond to trials with joy. And we know now that we don't have wisdom. We don't have the wisdom we need to respond to trials like that. We know that it's only found in God. And I love what follows. You need to circle this. You need to underline this. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And what's he say? Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Is that a promise? If you come to God and say, I need your wisdom. I don't know how to go through this trial in a way that I can have joy in my life because I know the trial is bearing fruit in me. He says, I will give it to you if you ask. Come to me and ask. John wanted his dispersed flock to know God would provide the wisdom they needed to respond to their jo- trials with joy. And praise God that John's pastoral counsel is still wise counsel to each of us here this morning. We need to have confidence in this promise. We need to claim this promise. When we go to God and we pray for wisdom, we need to understand what? God has promised to give it to us. Does that mean it's going to float down in some little golden scroll? No. Where's the first place to start to find this wisdom? Right here. This outlines life. This says this is what life's purpose is. This is what has happened to the world. We find so much wisdom in this world. Do you understand that we have so much insight into why the world is like it is today? Right here. A lot of times we look at the world and we say, how come it's so evil? How come so many people take advantage? How come there's abuse? How come?" And what do we find in the Scriptures? The answer. And that answer is sin. That is the answer for it all. God has been very clear. We know why the world is like it is today. And we know that God has provided a way for us not to be part of that world. faith in Jesus Christ. We need God's wisdom to live in a way that we see our trials as blessings, gifts from God. We have God's Word at our disposal, and we need to know it well, but we also need the wisdom of God to help us turn the knowledge of God's Word into action that helps us live in God's world, God's way. And it's such a blessing that we understand that God gives this wisdom generously. The way that the Greek is written here. It basically says, God is a giving God. We serve a giving God. We don't serve a selfish God. We don't serve a God that says, "Uh, you must do this, so I will do this. Being a giving God is part of His character. He cannot help but what? Want to give to His people. He's a giving God. He wants to give us the things we need to live righteous lives. God takes joy in giving us what we need to obey His command, to respond to trials He sends our way with joy. Our God is a generous God. He gives without reproach. What does that mean? What does it mean He gives without reproach? He will not remind us of how undeserving and unworthy we are. Amen? How many times can we go to God and ask for wisdom to go through trials the way we need to and deserve it? we can't we can never approach god in a deserving with a deserving attitude we are undeserving or unworthy every time we approach god he will not chide us for not asking sooner how many of you have tried to fix something yourself in a trial And you do everything. You ask your friends. You try all the things that they say on the internet to do. You do everything. And you come to the point in time, you say, I just don't know how to handle this. Nothing works. And then you say, I guess I better pray about it. I guess I better ask God what He wants me to do about it. But God doesn't give with reproach. He doesn't look at you and go, you know, you finally came to the place that you needed to come. And yes, I'm going to give you wisdom, but you're going to have to wait two weeks as punishment. That's not how God works. He gives without reproach. He doesn't chide us for not coming to Him sooner. Without hesitation, without reluctance or reservation, His divine wisdom will be given to us in generous abundance. And we need to have that truth in our hearts and our minds. We need to be confident in that. And this leads us to the third principle of gaining wisdom that leads to joy in trials. Christ followers ask for wisdom with singleness of mind. Look at verses 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The idea of faith here means more than just belief. It carries the idea of an unwavering trust in God. For us to come to God and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He has promised to give us wisdom, do we have to trust God at His Word? Yes, we do. We have to trust Him at His Word. It is a faith that we many of us understand that Abraham had. When God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham had absolute trust in God when God commanded him to give him his son. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, what's another word for test? Trial. Did we learn last week that testing is part of the trials that we have in our lives? So what was God doing to Abraham? Exactly what we've been talking about. Tim Chalice lost a son. Unexplained. But God didn't ask Tim Chalice to kill his son. Think about that. Think about what God was asking Abraham. Let's go on. He was tested. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Is there any way that Abraham could have understood what God was asking him to do? Or the purpose behind what God was asking him to do? No. But what do we see Abraham doing? The next day he gets up, saddles up all the supplies, goes up to the mount, puts Isaac on the altar, and is in the process of fulfilling God's command when God stops it. But we understand why Abraham was willing to do that in the next phrase, in the next sentence. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I don't think Abraham, we don't see anywhere in scripture where Abraham had seen God raise somebody from the dead before. But God had absolute trust because he said, God told him, this is the chosen son, your nation, your lineage will come from Isaac. And Abraham had absolute trust, absolute faith that even if he had to go through with the sacrifice, that God would raise that same son from the dead when he had never seen it happen before. That's the faith that James is writing about. A faith that just doesn't believe, but a faith that is, believes in, in a way that is absolute trust in God. And that trust means I will do whatever God wants me to do at any time. I will endure anything in a trial because I know His promise is this trial is good for me. And I will take joy in that. God had promised Abraham that Isaac would be that son. And Abraham, through that trial, demonstrated absolute trust in God's promise, even when he couldn't understand it. You see, this is a singular mindset. Who was Abraham completely and utterly focused on? God. You think if he had talked to his wife that he would have got good counsel? You think if he had talked to his friends or come to his own conclusion about what God was trying to do, do you think that he would have come to the right conclusion? No. He looked at God and said, God wants me to do this. And he says, I trust God in His promise, and I will follow through. A singular mindset. It's a faith that doesn't waver. It is a faith, as what we see here in our passage that does not doubt. Doubting is not a singular mindset. It is moving and shifting like the moving and shifting of the ocean surface of one's loyalty. And we need to understand something here in, in the Greek that doesn't always come through in the right way here. The doubting that James has in mind here is more than just a God will do, that God will do it. He has in mind here the idea of doubting is that James wants his people to know he is not divided in his loyalties. Let's put it that way. James says you must be completely loyal to God. Many times when we find ourselves looking and determining whether we're going to obey God or not, our loyalties are divided, aren't they? We think, well, maybe man has the answer here. Maybe man and what they've learned through science is maybe a little bit better than God. Or maybe we put uh, what man's wisdom is along... the unequal level of what God's wisdom is and we kind of juggle them a little bit to find out which one we're going to use at the same at, at this instant you ever find yourself doing that questioning what God tells us to do because this is what the world says we should do you know the science backs it up the experience of mankind backs it up but that's the idea here of doubting It's that divided mind, the divided loyalty. It's not just doubting the intellect. It's not just doubting, you know, wow, I don't uh, know if God can do that, but I know He can. It's not that kind of doubting. It's I have a divided loyalty because I am not just looking to God. I'm also looking to man's wisdom. That's a struggle for us, isn't it? That's a struggle. Maybe what the world says is true. When we look at our culture today, we have so much in our culture that tells the Christian that we are absolutely narrow-minded and wrong on most every front we believe. Our world tells us that there is not just two genders. And if we are to even think differently and think that that is true, then we are the enemy. We are the ones that are trying to destroy the wisdom of the world. And there are many, many in church today who say, you know, maybe science is right. Maybe they didn't understand everything in the Bible when, when that was written. You see how easy it is to shift a little bit, to have divided loyalties? And God says, that's not how we ask for wisdom. In this world, is it, it's considering that maybe raising our kids the way the world says may be better than the way God says. It is considering that God's way of defining marriage, sexual roles, priorities, how to handle money may be out of date. This is what that word means. It is considering that the trials we are going through are unfair, not reasonable, ridiculous, unloving, mean, or unnecessary, because that's what the world says. God says if we ask for wisdom with this kind of doubting, being a double-minded person, then there can be no expectation for God to answer our prayer for wisdom because we are not single-minded. We are doubting. We have a divided loyalty. And look, it says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. That double-minded is just kind of an explanation of the doubting. and helps us understand what that means. In the Greek, you know what that means? It means a two-souled man. A two-souled man. A double minded man or a double minded woman is a two souled person. A person who has two souls that are divided against one another. Are you a two souled person? Or do you understand and accept that God's word is the wisdom that we should be seeking? It's the only place to go when we are entering trials. If you and I want God to generously give us wisdom to, our, to properly respond to our trials, we must trust Him like Abraham did. We must, with singleness of mind, know that the trial God has brought into my life is necessary, absolutely necessary, beneficial, and loving. We must trust Him implicitly that our trials are a gift from Him, a stewardship, as Tim Challey said, a stewardship that must be properly responded to so that we can grow God can be glorified and the world will see that the gospel does change lives. That's why we need the single-mindedness. If we're not single-minded, we cannot witness to the world. And then as James is going to give us two illustrations. The first one we find in verse 9. Let, and both of these illustrations are trials. That's what we're talking about. The first trial, the first illustration he gives, the let the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. And you go, what in the world? How does that have anything to do with trials? He's talking about a person who is poor, a lowly person, a person who doesn't have much. And in that culture that James was writing, how were the poor treated? What were they looked at as being? Worthless. Nothing. They were abused. They were taken advantage of. They had what property they had being stolen from them by people who had much more power and influence. And this is, from a world's perspective, is that fair? Should they be treated like that? No, and would we agree with that? Yes, but that is still, from a world's point of view, the world is saying that's not fair. But here we have God saying through James that the poor man, when he is in his trial of being poor, He needs to boast in his exaltation. When he comes to Christ, what has he become, even though his status on earth has not changed? What has he become when he becomes a Christ follower? A child of God. Is that an exalted position? Life on this earth doesn't mean anything for him anymore. He may remain poor for the rest of his life, but he exalts in the fact that I know Jesus Christ. He exalts in the fact that I have an inheritance that cannot that cannot be matched on this planet. James says, the poor need to, who are Christians, who are Christ followers, and that's who most of the dispersed Jews were at that point in time. They were poor. They had nothing. And he says, you boast in your exaltation of being a Christ follower, of being shown who Jesus Christ is. You have been exalted. Don't hang your head. Don't live your life in your trials in a way that brings dishonor to God because he has exalted you more than you can ever imagine. Is that a good illustration? Does the world think that way about a poor person? The world says you need to work hard to do what? Change your situation. And if you don't work hard, you are worthless. And God says, no. If you know Jesus Christ, and if I have put you in that trial to be poor for the rest of your life, you're still exalted because this trial will grow you, this trial will bring glory to me, and this trial will... Preach the gospel to anybody who sees you. That's not the world's perspective. And then he goes on to talk about the rich. How many of you here have ever thought that being rich is a trial? Have you ever thought about that? From a worldly perspective, how many of us here are rich? I mean, our lives, we're in the top 1% of the world when it comes to affluence. And so this one here is probably speaking to us more than anything. And he says in verse 10, And the rich let him boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. What is one of the biggest issues the people who have riches, what is one of the biggest trials they have in their life? To not become prideful. To not become, come to the point where they think that they deserve what they got because they worked hard. Since most of us here are, are, would be considered rich, I want you to understand something. You have what you have because God gave it to you. Period. He gave you the ability to gain it. He gave you the discipline to gain it. He gave you all the opportunities you have and the open doors so that you have what you have. You have nothing. You own nothing that God did not bless you with and give you. And as soon as we start thinking that I have what I have because I did the work, because I did the sacrifice, because I did this or I did that, then we are not where God wants us to be. We have failed the trial of being rich because God says here, and the rich boast in his humiliation. What does it mean when a person comes to Christ and they understand who they are before God and their utter worthlessness before God? A rich person is often humiliated. They bow themselves and say, why in the world did I think that highly of myself? Why in the world would I ever think that I have what I have because it was by my own sweat? And rich, when they come to Christ, their trial is to what? Fall before God and say, Lord God, I am no better off than the poor person. I have what I have because of your grace, because of your mercy. And what I have, I now give back to you because that's its rightful place. And he says, why should, a person, why should a rich person do this? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And if you want to know what that means even further, go to Troy's class in Ecclesiastes because in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man that has ever walked this earth except for Jesus Christ says, everything that I accomplished, all the buildings I built, all the pleasures of life that I, everything from wine, women, and song, everything that I accomplished, he said, is vanity. It is worth nothing. And then you go all the way to the end of the book and I'm going to destroy it for Troy here. I'm going to give, give the... At the very end of the book, chapter 12, he said it is all vanity, it is all worthless, unless God's a part of it. See, those are the two illustrations. He says, you're not going to be able to have the wisdom that you need to take joy in your trials until you come to me with absolute single-mindedness, trust, absolute single-mindedness, come to me, coming to me in faith, saying, no matter what you bring into my life, I trust that this is good for me. I trust that I'm going to grow through this. I trust that it's a blessing and a gift from you. You see, we can't do chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials until we have the wisdom to do that. And we cannot have the wisdom to do that Until we humble ourselves before God. Until we humble ourselves before God and say, I need the wisdom you have. You know, throughout God's Word, we see examples of God's people responding to trials properly. What a comfort it is to see that it is possible for God's people, for you and I, to respond to trials as being a blessing from God. But only if we have the perspective that James is writing about. It is also a great comfort that we see God's people today can also respond to great trials and come out of them praising God and growing in their love for God, which we saw with Tim Chalice today. I follow Tim Chalice's blog, and I remember reading the one where he was on the plane. Tim Chalice has always been a very succinct writer. Good insight. I've enjoyed his blog much over the years. But as soon as you read the one that he wrote while he was on the plane, letting everybody know what was going on in his life, you could, see it. You could feel a change in Tim Challies. His son had just died. And see, we have been focusing on Tim Challies, but we don't know about his son's sister. You see, she went to the same college. She was there when he died. Can you imagine the fear and the trepidation when a brother just falls down and there is no resuscitation, there is no chance for him to live? And she watched it all happen. And she comes out with the family saying, I have grown through this. It is part of God's plan for my life and I would not change that. Is she still broken like her father and her mother? Does she still feel the pain? Does she still shed tears? Yes. But she also understands that this trial is part of God's will for my life. And it is a joy and it is a blessing. So now it's time for each of us to look in the mirror. You've been waiting for this, haven't you? Let me give you some questions to reflect on this week. Do you really believe you need God's wisdom to handle your trials? Do you really believe it. And when I say that, does your life exhibit that? Or do you rely on your wisdom and the wisdom of the world first before you ever get to God? Do you really believe you need God's wisdom to handle your trials? Are you quick to ask Him for wisdom to respond to your trials? Are you quick to ask Him for wisdom to respond to your trials so that you can have joy or are you more interested when you talk to Him in God removing the trials so you can become more comfortable? How many times do the first initial reactions to trials is coming to God and say, Lord God, please take this away from me? Instead of coming to God and saying, Lord God, I will endure whatever you put me through right now because I understand you're growing me and there's benefit to it. But what's the heart? I don't want out of this until I've learned what God wants me to learn. That's my heart. It's not my heart to have it removed right now so I can go back to being comfortable. Do you ask God for wisdom with singleness of heart and mind, knowing that His wisdom is right and the world's wisdom is wrong? Do you absolutely know that where God's Word stands is where I stand? As you reflect on these questions, I'm going to read our passage this morning from a paraphrased Bible by... J.B. Phillips. It's fairly old. J.B. Phillips was an English pastor. He puts it in a way that is really, really understandable for us today. And so I'm going to read it to you as you reflect on these questions. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, sends greetings to the 12 dispersed tribes. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed, and you will find you have become men of mature character with the right sort of independence. And if, in the process, any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem, he has only to ask God, who gives generously to all men without making them feel foolish or guilty, and he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given to him. But he must ask in sincere faith without secret doubts as to whether he really wants God to help out or not. The man who trusts God, but with inward reservations, is like a wave of the sea carried forward by the wind one moment and driven back the next. That sort of man cannot hope to receive anything from God, and the life of a man of divided loyalty will reveal instability at every turn. I like how he wrote that. You see, that's where we're sitting. That's why we're looking in the mirror. Because we want to obey God and understand that the trials that come into our lives are good for us. They're blessings. They're a stewardship. They're growth opportunities. They are not something to be despised like the world does. So if you're in a trial right now, are you walking this way? Maybe it's just been a bad month with finances and you're just kind of keyed up about it. Maybe you got stuck on the freeway and were late for a meeting and in that meeting you lost out on a job opportunity. You see, those aren't, aren't what? Those aren't as severe as Tim Challies, but they are all trials for us. Are they all training opportunities for us? Are they all good for us? Father God, we come to you and we praise your name for your word. We praise your name for James and the wisdom that he is writing to his dispersed congregation. Father, help us, we ask and we pray. We plead, Lord God, that you would move our hearts and our minds to take the knowledge that we have right now about trials and the purposes in our lives, to take that knowledge and to apply it to our lives and put it into action because we have sought out your wisdom and you have generously given it to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the examples you give us in our lives to help us see that it's possible. In Christ's name, amen.